Okay, Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Let's listen to the word of our God. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Afternoon, evening, whatever this is. I'm doing it again. Father, I ask that you would grant us ears to hear. That you would have us, uh, that you grant us hearts to understand uh, that which we see here. That you would, through this text, be granting your people hope. Hope to sustain us through whatever may come this next year, this next decade, the rest of our lives. That we know that we have a future. That we would know that that future is with you. And that future is not just in your presence, but in the most intimate, special kind of presence. And so encourage your people. And invite those who have not yet come to come to you through the Son. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My daughter is almost 11. It's shocking to me that in a few more days, so to speak, a little over a week, will be the 11th anniversary of when I held that little tiny person for the first time. I had so much joy in my heart and so many dreams for this child. Things that... Uh, may or may not ever come to pass because I don't know the future of this child. I think of Joseph and Mary. You know, before the shepherds show up, they'd already had, you know, she'd had visitations from angels and he'd had dreams. And uh, so they had some concept that this child is not like an ordinary child, but they couldn't quite grasp, I imagine, all that this child would experience, had to experience. They probably weren't sure what to hope for, for this child. But this child had a heavenly father who knew the plans he had for him and because they were the plans they had made together. We'll get to that in a moment. The father's plans for this child were fulfilled. And we see in Revelation 19 the, the grand consummation of all those plans, that which began in eternity, but in a sense started on earth anyway, 
with the birth of Jesus unfolds. Kind of ambitious, huh? (laughs) The big idea this evening is that the Father sent the Son to buy a forever bride. We're going to do, in a sense, a a flyby initially. So Steve Boyer should like that. We're going to kind of do a quick pass over it and, and see the lay of the land, and then we're going to go in for a little more closer examination of what we've got here. And the first thing of this, the flyby, so to speak, is the wedding supper is the culmination of history. Everything has been pointing to this, in other words. All that we see in this text here centers on the marriage of the Lamb. And so that's where we're going to start, this idea of the marriage of the Lamb. Of the lamb. This is an event <clears throat> that was not just hoped for, but as I mentioned before, was planned. And theologians talk about this idea called the covenant of redemption. And uh, oddly enough, I, I ran out of CDs and one... Uh, series I was listening to, so I had to go in the church library and it's like scratching my head, what should I take to listen to? Oh, promises fulfilled. I'll take this R.C. Sproul one. I don't know who brought it in, left it there, whatever. And all we started talking about was covenants. And the covenant of redemption is like, that's timely, I guess. It's fortuitous in its timing. In eternity, we, we see hints of this in John's Gospel, for those of you who go to desert. This, is, this will be a little familiar to you. Maybe not as much to the people at Covenant, but I don't know what Christopher's been doing with y'all. But we see in, in eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together made this covenant with one another for the salvation of sinners and the glorification of their name. And so the Father had responsibilities, and the Son had responsibilities, and the Spirit had responsibilities. The Son was going to take on flesh and bone. He was going to become man. He was going to perfectly obey. He was going to offer Himself as a sacrifice upon the cross to fulfill the sacrifices of the Old Testament and to redeem a people and here's what the Father promised him. So that's where there's a covenant. That's his responsibility. But now there are these blessings, so to speak, that the Son is promised by the Father. And central to them are two. He will be glorified. He will be exalted. And secondly, he will have a people. That there was a people that the Father had given to him. And we see it's not just a people. It's not just a nation. It's not just a group, we see here, is a bride. He came not just for a group of people that will be his citizens as the king. He came to buy a bride. And the Father will keep his word in this. In the Old Testament, we see the announcement, so to speak. We have Israel being called his bride in a number of places, particularly Hosea, Jeremiah, among others. Okay. We have, of course, here in, in the cross, in the New Testament, Jesus paying the bride price. Now, that's an odd concept for us. Okay. We don't live back then, but back then you had to pay 
for a bride. And why did you have to pay for a bride? Not because she's property, but because she's a value to the family she's leaving. You're removing an important part of their economic life together. And they're compensated for her being now a part of your economic life. And so there was a bride price that was often paid. And, you know, in the Old Testament we see poor old Jacob, seven years a slave, you know, trying to get that wife. Before Laban, of course, pulls the fast one. Now it's seven more years to get the wife he really wanted. Okay? That's the bride price. He didn't have the money, so he worked it off as an indentured servant. But we see Jesus not, not paying the price as a servant. We see Jesus paying the price with his blood. With his death. He bought her with his own life. And that doesn't make sense to us. Okay? Without the resurrection, it does make no sense. But thank goodness there's the resurrection because he'd be dead, she'd be bought, she'd have no husband. But indeed, he lives forever to be the bridegroom of his bride. We don't do that anymore because we don't have the promise of the resurrection in the immediate future. We have that at the return of Jesus, but we don't have it, you know, three weeks from now. We buy big rings with diamonds on them, okay? That's how we kind of have translated this idea of a bride price that is paid. Of course, now it goes to the bride, not to her family. The return of Jesus, which we see here in Revelation 19, is the wedding supper and the... And well, the wedding and the supper, the festivities that follow that whole event in that culture, they would have had normally about a week of celebration. We, we're glad we have a, a night of celebration. They would have about a week of feasting and partying together. And so, in many ways, we have to remember and, and concentrate on this idea that uh, the advent, the incarnation of the Son are part of this greater, bigger love story. Who doesn't like a love story? And this is the greatest love story there is. But if we fly by, we also notice, and I kind of remove this from our call to worship in the earlier part of 19, but we see the wreckage, the carnage, the judgment that has just taken place over the prostitute who in the book of Revelation is a counterfeit church, a counterfeit bride, that seeks to seduce the people of God away from the one true God. And so this takes place in the context of the judgment that comes upon this immodest, crassly dressed counterfeit. The simply and modestly dressed bride is not judged, but is delivered. And all of this started with the Incarnation. It's sort of, I never did dominoes. That takes too much time. Too little payoff. Because it all ends so quickly. You know, you set up all those dominoes in a row, and you have these elaborate patterns. You see them on TV, these people that do crazy things, and then you flick the first one, and this whole thing just follows down in a train. This is the first domino that starts the chain reaction that culminates in the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
And so the baby in the manger, the eternal son, came to seek and save a bride for himself. And I fear that I am going to go beyond a homily. Forgive me. Secondly, the redeemed rejoice with the Lamb. There's a sound as we get closer to the text here that John hears in this sound is deafening and he describes it in three ways. It is like, okay, that key word is in there all time, all the time. It is like that of a great multitude. It is like the roar of many waters. It is like mighty peals of thunder. And so the idea that is worked here, it's not simply a loud noise, but this is in a sense world-shaking worship. Have you ever been in a stadium that erupts? I've been in the Boston Garden when the Celtics have won playoff games, and the place, the rafters shake in the building, and that's not even going to a parade when there's a celebration because of a championship. The sound of the roaring waters. It could be since John was on Patmos in exile, he's thinking about the breakers. You know, those rocks that extend into the ocean to try and break the waves so they don't destroy the, the, uh, the shore. And the waves pound and pound in this roar that emerges as these big waves hit the rocks. Or perhaps waterfalls. How many of you have been to Niagara Falls? And you have to shout to the person who's next to you because the roar of the water is so loud. That's the idea that he's getting at. These mighty peals of thunder which shake the earth. That's the idea. It's so loud. It's, it's, there's no competition. We see in a sense, he's intending that humanity and the rest of creation, in a sense, are joined together, heaven and earth. I believe it's earth, heaven and creation sing, uh, and joy to the world, that line. It's a reflection of this. If there was a sound man, I'm sure some of the people would go and say, turn it down, it's too loud, it's too loud. When we were doing joy to the world, I wanted to go, turn it up. Turn it up. I want to feel the rafters shake. Not loud enough for the praise of our God. So what's going on? They're rejoicing. They're rejoicing precisely because the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. This again, the context, this is in a sense the hinge of what we see. Right before it is the judgment, and now we have the deliverance. and, And both declare that God reigns. There is no enemy that shall not be defeated. There is no friend who will not be protected. Because the Almighty reigns. There is no one who is more powerful than the Almighty. He will be able to do and He will do all that He puts His mind to do. That ought to comfort us. Then there's this threefold experience here. Let us rejoice, they're saying. Let us exalt. Let us give Him the glory, this threefold command that they give themselves. Complete worship. The focus in the first two is this idea of exceeding joy. Remember, that was just destruction. If you, if you look, 
you know, there's, there's talk about, you know, he's judged the great prostitute. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And yet these people are called to rejoice because the enemy, the threat is gone. There is no more need for them to fear. Doug Kelly notes about this. The saints are full of praise because what they had to accept by faith in times of darkness now shines brighter than the noonday sun before their eyes. These are people who have been through tribulation, who have been through persecution, who have been through watching their loved ones die, who have suffered themselves, and now all of their hopes and dreams are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and they erupt in praise, loud, glorious praise with joy. There are no dry eyes. There are raw throats everywhere. Give Him the glory. Kabod. The weightiness of God. And so they ascribe to God the glory that is due His name, the value that is due His name, precisely because of what He has done for His people. Who does this? We're not exactly sure who all the parties are, but this we do know. It is not those who followed the dragon. Stu will talk about that on Sunday. It is not those who followed the beasts. It is not those who followed the prostitute. It is those who followed the lamb. It is those who have always been at the throne of God, the elders and the angels. The ones who are welcome at the wedding. They rejoice not just because God reigns, but because His bride has made herself ready. She has been prepared for the day. And I cannot help but think of my big fat Greek wedding whenever I think of this. And all of the primping and the thing that goes on. And you know, it's so true towards us in the sense of she has the blemish. And the whole family panics. All of, all of her bridesmaids, which are all of her cousins and her sisters, they're all in a stir because she has the blemish. We have blemishes, brothers and sisters. But He is the one who removes them. We don't go and get our own dress. What we see here is that they are, these things are provided for us, for the bride. How is she prepared? There's this idea that is laid out away from the song, the righteous deeds of the saints. Now there's a little bit of uncertainty with regard to the word righteous here. Because it could mean works that are in and of themselves righteous, or it could mean the works that vindicate the grace they have been given, which means the idea of they manifest for all to see the grace they have been given. The grace that we see in Titus 2 that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes unto righteousness. And so it's not just that they say, so to speak, that they're in, but their life manifests the fact that they're in by grace. 
God's empowering grace. The garments are given to us, as Doug Kelly notes, at God's expense. They are donned through faith in Christ. And once life is turned over to Him, the Holy Spirit motivates us to show, faith, show forth the beautiful righteousness of the saints and our character. And so, for those of us who have received Christ, who are united to Christ, uh, this life is, in a sense, a preparation for that day. This is, as we see in Ephesians 2, that we are now God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to, to walk in the good deeds He has prepared for us ahead of time. We cannot separate Ephesians 2.10 from 8 and 9. They're joined together by Paul and the Holy Spirit. All those who are saved by grace also walk in the works that God prepared for us ahead of time precisely because we are now His workmanship in Christ Jesus. And so this bride, the church, dons these things, prepares these things, walks in these things. And so, Christians, this life is in a sense the arduous preparation for that great day. And for those of you who have prepared for a wedding, you know it's arduous. I still remember those days. I was more involved in it than I probably should have been. Amy would probably let, agree with that statement. <laughs> it's like, I've never met a man who cared about silverware. Okay? But I cared. And, you know, those, were the, those are the moments. If you're ever engaged, pay attention. Because those moments will come up. And you have to ask yourself, is this person worth this to me? <laughs> right? Because there's going to be conflicts. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to have to be a bringing of two wills into one, which means... Compromise on non-essentials. Okay? And what gets you through all of that garbage that sometimes you experience in, in the planning of the wedding, you know, which food shall we get? It's like there's no end. What kind of it, what, what, you know, font should we have on the, on the invitations and all this stuff? Your eye is on the goal. The wedding day. Not the party, but the person you're going to marry. And the hope for a joy that extends far beyond that day. And so it's the same way here. As we go through the arduous preparation, what we're intended to do is to keep our eyes on the fact that there's going to be a wedding day. That's why God tells us this in Revelation 19, to encourage us to provide us with motivation this is not going to last forever. One day it will culminate in this great thing. The wedding supper of the Lamb. So the redeemed join creation in rejoicing in the Lamb's triumph and the wedding. Because the enemies are the ones who threaten the beloved. Thirdly, blessed are all who receive the invitation with faith. See, John he hears this benediction from the angel. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. 
there is a blessing that is pronounced. And, and those who are his servants are invited to the wedding. Watched the butler recently. Actually, we watched it over the, the course of three months, more than that, because we started it on, on vacation and we ended it in November. There's this one scene in the butler. For those of you who haven't seen the movie, uh, he's the White House butler. And so he serves a number of administrations. I think it started with JFK, if my memory serves me correctly. See, it started way too long ago. And for all of these years, he's been the butler. And he's moved his way up, but he, he's had this one problem. He's kind of always asked that the black butlers should be paid the same as the white butlers. Sounds reasonable to me. Administration after administration, no. Something changed with the Reagan administration. Finally, he got a yes. And he was rejoicing over that. He was glad for that, as he should have been. Justice was finally given to him. But then an offer came. The offer to attend a statehouse dinner. Not as butler, but as guest. And so we, who are his servants, are invited to come to this wedding not to serve, but as guests. To rejoice with all creation at the faithfulness of our God. This blessing is not simply being invited, but I think the implication is also attending. There's a sense in which you must RSVP. In other words, you need to show up to experience the blessing. It was one of those weddings that I missed. You see, one of my classmates in seminary was getting married, but I had already become a pastor at that point. And that while it was in Naples, Florida, which is probably four or five hours away, it was a Saturday night, and you know, I wouldn't be able to get back. And I felt a strong sense of, I'm called to this church. I need to be here. And so I didn't go. And if you know anything about Naples, Florida, know this. There is money in Naples, Florida. And the bride's father had money. And I was told by my friends that I missed probably one of the best wedding receptions ever. Filet mignon, lobster tail. It was good. But I didn't know the blessing because I didn't show up. We need to respond. We need to come by faith. Because we recognize that we're worthy to enter this. We have access to this, not because we're good, but because Christ was good for us. Not because of our works, but because of Christ's work for us. Now, we can presume that we're going to be there. Jack Miller talks about this. Presumption looks like faith, but at the heart, it's a confidence in yourself. Not in Jesus and in what he has done for you. So some people can presumptuously think, well, of course I'm invited, and of course I'm going to be there. And if you probe as to why they think they're going to be there, it's really about presumption. Well, 
uh, I'm a Christian. One of my professors at college thought that, well, I'm an American, therefore I'm a Christian. No, being born in the right country is not enough to get you in. That's presumption. That's not faith. Presumption also looks to, well, I'm pretty good. I've never been to jail. Haven't killed anybody and gotten away with it. Or whatever it might be. Whatever a person's standard of what it means to be good. And so they're presuming upon their goodness in order to get in. And that's not how we get in. It is solely by the pardoning grace of God. Received by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So have you responded yet? Have you heard this call, this invitation, and have you processed it and understood it and said, yeah, I want to be there, and yeah, I understand how to get there, and yeah, I'm trusting in Jesus to get me there? If you have already responded in that way as a part of the bride, are you getting ready? Are you making use of the purifying grace of God in Jesus Christ and not just the pardoning grace of God? Part of the beauty of the gospel is not just we're just pardoned. That's good. Okay. But think of the imagery here. Bride and groom brought into the most intimate relationship we can imagine with God himself. That's far greater than being pardoned. It is being brought to the heart of God as his most most beloved and treasured person. And so the church is brought to him in that way to enjoy communion with him in that way. And so the birth of Jesus is of great importance. But the birth of Jesus is not the whole kit and caboodle. I had to look that up, how to spell it. He comes to make sinners into the church, which is his bride. He paid the bride price with His own blood and our lives are meant to be preparation for the wedding supper. And so, as you celebrate Christmas, ponder this. Where are you in that story? Are you still among those who are following the counterfeit, following the dragon, following the beast? Are you among those that's going to be outside the city? Are you among those by faith in Jesus Christ who are going to be inside? Who are going to be rejoicing and communing with the eternal God forever and ever? Jesus came from heaven to earth so that we, in a sense, might go to heaven, which comes to earth. That's another story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to remember and to celebrate, to um, rejoice 
and exalt and give glory to you as we anticipate what is to come, as we remember that which has already taken place for our salvation. And so, Father, in the midst of this, encourage us with that notion that you are a promise-keeping God and that you have done these things in Jesus Christ that we can rest assured you will bring to completion those which are still outstanding because of what you have already done in his death and resurrection and ascension. So, Father, work through us to continue to prepare your bride. Help us to receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this endeavor. The ministry of the Spirit to illumine the Scriptures. To teach us to say no to unrighteousness. To say yes to righteousness. The Holy Spirit who comes to empower for ministry. To enlarge our hearts to grasp the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That we might give you more glory because we see more of your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.